0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. And up next, we bring you a story from Jean Bishop, a hard story. It's the story of a loving family shattered by gruesome violence and then a change of heart. Here's Gene Bishop.
1: I grew up in Oklahoma City with a mom and a dad and two sisters. I'm the middle child of three. I have an older sister, Jennifer, and a younger sister, Nancy, who's five years younger than me. And we had this kind of idyllic childhood, you know, nice neighborhood, great friends, great school. And so when we all grew up and ended up moving back to Chicago, where I was born, where my sisters and I were born, We all kind of stayed together as a close family. Nancy got married to the love of her life, Richard, at the age of 23. And they started right away trying to have kids. They wanted to have a big, happy family. Even though Nancy was the youngest of us three sisters, she was the first of us to get pregnant. She was the first who was going to be a mom. And when she announced the news of this to me and my older sister, my mom and dad, we were all just over the moon with joy and happiness. We went out to dinner to celebrate the great news. We went to this Italian restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago. And I brought a little baby gift, a a little baby sweater from a trip I'd just been on. And we ordered pasta and we were laughing and, and my parents were so thrilled. This would have been their first grandchild this would have been my first little niece or nephew. It was a Saturday night, the night before Palm Sunday. We all hugged goodbye in the parking lot that night. My mom and dad went back to their big house in the suburbs. I went back to my apartment in Chicago, and Nancy and Richard went back to this townhouse they were living in, in Winnetka, Illinois. And Winnetka is the place I live now. It's one of the safest, most affluent communities in the country. When they walked through the door of their townhouse, the killer was waiting for them. He had used a glass cutter to break in the glass sliding door in the back because he knew that breaking the glass would have alerted the neighbors and they would have called the police. He had a 357 Magnum revolver. He pointed it at them. He handcuffed my brother-in-law, Richard, And Richard was this gentle giant. He was this six foot three, 230 pound, you know, former athlete, but he was completely disabled when he was handcuffed. He forced them down into the basement. They begged for their lives. Nancy and Richard both told him that she was pregnant, asked him not to hurt her. First he put the gun to Richard's head and he killed him execution style with one gunshot. And I I can't describe how awful that must have been for Nancy, how surreal it must have been to see this man she loved and wanted to have a family with and grow old with, just just assassinated in that moment. So then the gun was turned on her. She covered up her own head with her hands just because of what she'd just seen and and kind of huddled in a corner. Uh, The killer fired twice instead into her pregnant side and abdomen. And then he left her there to die. And when we got the coroner's report later, we saw that she lived for about 10 minutes after that. And the blood marks in the basement and the marks on her body showed what she did. She she tried to call for help by banging on this metal shelf with a tool that was in the basement. She was too weak to stand. And so she was trying to make a noise that someone would hear. And I just imagine that at some point, she must have known that no help was coming and that she was dying and and that the darkness was kind of closing in around her and her baby was dying inside her. So she dragged herself by her elbows over to where Richard's body was. And before she died, she did this incredible thing that the police told us about later. She had drawn in her own blood on the floor next to Richard. The shape of a heart and the letter U. Love you. It's how she used to sign her her cards and letters to him. And when I learned that, I was with my mom. And my mom burst into tears. And she said, It's true, isn't it? Love is stronger than death. And when I heard it, I thought, What? But this incredible presence of God could explain the the kind of serenity and love and luminous grace that could explain her being able to do those in her last moments. This young woman who knew she was dying to have this be her last word on her life. And that changed everything for me. I was working at a big law firm at the time doing corporate law and doing a terrible job of it because I wasn't putting my heart into it. I didn't love it, it wasn't deeply meaningful to me, and that I, I was cheating my employer as a result, I wasn't giving it my best. And I realized when Nancy died at age 25, four years younger than me, that life is short, and it can be taken from us at any moment. And we have to spend our lives doing things that are deeply meaningful, that do require our whole heart, and that do some good for the world. And so I left the uh, corporate firm to be a public defender within months. And it's a job that I've been doing ever since, a job that, that I still do. So after Nancy was killed for six months, the crime went unsolved. No one could explain who would kill this happy young couple with no enemies, with everything in the world to live for. And I was just stunned at the theories that were being floated, that maybe it was the drug runners that, you know, were trying to disguise drugs in the coffee warehouse where Richard worked and maybe he saw something he shouldn't have seen and they killed him. Maybe it was some jealous ex-boyfriend of Nancy's. I mean, all these crazy things that didn't make any sense and, and that led to nowhere. One day, I got a phone call in my apartment from the local CBS reporter who wanted to know my reaction to the arrest in my sister's murder case. And I said, you know, what, what arrest? And he said, there's a teenage boy in custody in the Winnetka police station. And I was shocked. It was the last thing in the world I expected to find out that it was this skinny 16 year old who lived a few blocks away from them that had been the one who killed them he had bragged to his friends and nobody believed him they thought he was joking when he had said that that he had done it until one friend finally did believe him because by this time the trail had grown so cold that that the killer felt confident enough to to show the gun to his friend to show the handcuffs like the ones he'd used to to tell him in detail how he'd done it and the friend wasn't going to turn him in at first, didn't turn him in And then when he was afraid that this young man might kill again, and that he'd be a kind of a accomplice to it if he do, finally walked into the Winnetka police station and turned him in. So the police had gotten a warrant, had gone to this young man's home, had found the gun under his bed, tested the ballistics, found it a perfect match to the bullets that killed my family members found the uh, glass cutter he'd used, found this notebook he kept about killing them with all the press clippings about the murders. We even found out that he had gone to Nancy and Richard's funeral. So he was arrested. He was held without bond in the Cook County Jail, and he went to trial about a year later. And he took the stand and denied the crime, tried to blame it on someone else, said he hadn't done it, that a friend of his had come to his door the night of the murder and knocked on it and handed him the gun and said, here, hide this i I just killed two people with it. The jury didn't buy it. It contradicted all the physical evidence. It contradicted the details of the crime scene. Only he would have known about his own confessions to the crime. And so they found him guilty. And when he was sentenced, he got the mandatory sentence that you got at that time in the state of Illinois for a a multiple homicide. And that's life in prison without the possibility of parole. And when he got that sentence, my mom was sitting next to me on these hard wooden benches where you sit in the courtroom as a spectator. And she said to me, we'll never see him again. And when she told me that, I was glad. I thought, good, you know, I'll never have to think about him again. I had decided very early on that whoever had done it, I was not going to hate him or her. Because I knew that if I had hate in my heart over the murders of my family members, that there wouldn't be enough hate in the world. It'd be this vast, endless ocean of hate that I would drift into. And so I had to forgive that person. But the forgiveness that I had given to him wasn't directed directly to him, I didn't tell him. It was a forgiveness in my own mind and heart just to unchain myself from him. And it was a forgiveness that wasn't really supposed to be about him or for him in any way. It was really for God, because my faith teaches me that we have to forgive as we've been forgiven. And it was for Nancy, because I knew her. She was generous and loving and kind and funny and warm. And she loved life. She loved people. She was carrying life in her body when she was killed. So that's when I decided to to work in her memory against gun violence, against the death penalty, against anything that shed more blood. And I forgave for me because of this saying I love, I write about it in my book that hating another person is like drinking poison and expecting that other person to die. And I knew that if I harbored bitterness in my heart towards him, it wouldn't affect him at all. In fact, he might even want my hate, but it would eat me alive. And so I vowed not to do that. So he was sentenced to life. He was taken to Menard Prison, this dungeon-like fortress in downstate Illinois. And for 20 years, I went on my way, not thinking of him at all, but just trying to live my life in a way that honored God and this gift of life that I still had been given and that honored Nancy and her memory. So, I did a lot of speaking against the death penalty all over the country and the world from my perspective as a murder victim's family member. In the course of doing that, I met this law professor named Mark Osler. Mark Osler is, like me, a really unlikely opponent of the death penalty. He is a former prosecutor who doesn't believe in it. And he had written a book about uh, faith and the death penalty. And I met him at this conference down in Atlanta, Georgia, at Martin Luther King Jr's church, Ebenezer Baptist. And he gave me his book. And later he gave me another one of uh, one chapter written by a colleague of his from where he used to teach. And this chapter is written by Randall O'Brien. So Randall's this guy who grew up in Macomb, Mississippi, veteran of the army in Vietnam, first a teacher of religion at Baylor and then a college university uh, president in Tennessee. And he wrote this chapter about forgiveness, which I was really interested in. And in that chapter, he wrote this, that no Christian man or woman is relieved of the obligation to work to reconcile with those who've wronged them. And when I read that sentence, I was so affronted. I was just completely indignant. And I thought, you're telling me that even though this killer of my sister is not sorry and hasn't apologized and showed no remorse whatsoever, that it's my job to walk out to him, hand outstretched, and say, let's make peace, you and I. And I was so angry that I actually called Mark Osler to yell at him for giving me this book. And he said, you know, don't be mad at me. I didn't write this. Call the author. Call Randall O'Brien. Tell him what you think. And so I did. I called the the president of Carson Newman University, and I left a message that Jean Bishop wanted to speak to him. And I thought, oh, gosh, he'll, he'll never call me back. I'm this stranger calling out of the blue. But he did. I was sitting in my car waiting to pick up someone from O'Hare Airport. It was one of those freezing cold Chicago nights and the snow is swirling around and the heaters on full blast and I get this phone call from this guy who sounds just like Jimmy Carter. It says Jane Bishop and it was Randall. And I told him the story about my sister and the murder and this unrepentant murderer and this thing he written that, that so you know uh upset me. And I said to him, you know wh- what what reconciling with this remorseless person like what what would this even look like and he said it would look like jesus on the cross and i know that i'm speaking to an audience of you know people of many faiths or maybe no faith at all but my christian faith is is how i was raised and so i know what he meant by that when he said that the the gospels record that when jesus was dying being crucified by people who are not sorry who haven't apologized to him, who showed no remorse, that he was praying for them, that he said, Father, forgive them, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. And I was so convicted in that moment because I'd never once prayed for this young man who killed my family members. I'd never even said his name. I went through my life saying Nancy and Richard's name because I wanted their names to live and the name of this killer to die. And I realized that if I were going to pray for this young man, I needed to say his name. Because you, you, you kind of make him a non-person by not saying it. So the first thing I did when I started praying for him is to say his name. It's David Biro, David Biro. He is a child of God. My faith teaches me that God loves him every bit as much as God loves me. And that I'm as flawed and fallen as he is, and as in need of grace. What I'd done all those years is built this very convenient wall between me and him. And on one side of the wall was him, and you're the evil murderer. And the other side was me, the good innocent victim's family member. And I saw that God breaks down that wall, and that instead of trying to shut him away, I should try to bring him back, to bring him back into community, into fellowship, into the grace of God. So I wrote him, I wrote him a letter. And I said in that letter, I forgave you a long time ago, and I never told you and that was wrong. And I'm sorry. And I've waited all these years for you to apologize to me. I'm going to go first. I am sorry. And if you want me to come see you, I will. And I mailed that letter, not knowing how he'd react. I put it in the mailbox to Pontiac prison where he was at that time. And I pictured him getting it and maybe crumpling it up and throwing it away or showing it to his cellmate and having a good laugh of it, you know, over it, over this, this woman and her lofty words about forgiveness. Or maybe getting back some, you know, smarmy, ingratiating, uh, you know, letter uh, trying to manipulate in some way. And so the last thing in the world I expected was to get a very thick envelope a few weeks later in my mailbox at the public defender's office with his name, Bureau, up in the left-hand corner and the return address. And for two days, I couldn't open it. I was just afraid to see what it would be. And so I asked Mark Osler to open it instead (laughs) and read it to me. And when he did, he said, it's good. And he read me out the whole letter and it started like this. You and your family waited so long to hear this. I am guilty. I did kill your family members. And I'm so sorry. If I could take it back, I would." And in the next 15 pages front and back in this letter, he traced his whole trajectory over those 20 plus years of how he'd gone from you know, trying to get away with the crime to getting to prison and seeing the people around him and realizing that he didn't want to be like them. And yet he was that he'd done this terrible thing that he deserved to be there. When he'd see the news on TV of some horrific crime, like a a baby being murdered or an old woman being raped, he he'd, he'd think instinctively, Oh, that person's an animal that did that. And, and then he thought, wait a second, that's me. I shot a pregnant woman in the stomach. He started, Um, reading. He started um, self-teaching. He had a friend who had come to visit him and then one day she just vanished, never wrote him again, never called him again, never came to see him, never answered his letters to her. And he started just wondering why, you know, was it something he had done? Was it something that happened to her? And then he started having great empathy for my family, thinking, gosh, I bet the Bishop family wishes they knew why. Like, why had I done this to them? Why did I kill their family members? And so he became very remorseful and wanted to reach out to me, but didn't want to do that unbidden because he was afraid of how that would uh, traumatize me or my family if if we didn't want to see that name, Biro, on on an envelope to us. So the minute I had written to him, he started writing back. And I did go to see him. I'm seeing him still. It has been incredibly healing to hear about Nancy's last moments to learn about things I didn't know. One thing I learned that I loved was this. Nancy was kind of like the the chatty talky one and Richard was like the strong silent type. And so I imagine that as they were talking to the person who killed them begging for their lives that she would have been the one during the talking. But what David Bureau told me is it wasn't her, it was Richard. That from the moment he saw a gun pointed at his wife and child, he never stopped begging, finding ways, trying to find any way that she would be let go, that he would stay behind, and that, that, that she would be let go and be able to live. And it was incredibly healing to speak to David because... I got to have this one-on-one victim impact statement that I never got to do. When he was sentenced to life without parole, he didn't have these aggravation and mitigation proceedings that you usually have in a court case because the sentence was mandatory. So we never got to do a statement that we could read out in court about how his actions had hurt us, had hurt everyone who loved Nancy and Richard, my mom, my dad, my older sister, Nancy's neighbors, her co-workers, her classmates, everyone who loved them. And when I talk about Nancy to him, this kind of shadow comes across his face. He told me once, he said, the more I get to know her through you, the worse I feel about what I did. And that's the only justice he can give me. He can't bring Nancy back or her baby or her husband. But he can do what he's done, which is to grasp the enormity of what he did, and to feel great shame and remorse for it, and to do everything he can now to live a, a quiet life in the prison where he's doing life. Um, because I told him that it's, it's his job now to do every bit of good in the world that she can no longer do. So I sing in a choir at my church. And one day one of my choir members asked me, Jean, what is it like to go? and see the person who killed your family members, what it's like to shake the hand that held that gun. And I told her, it's like frozen earth that used to be hard and barren where nothing would grow, becoming soft and moist, where green shoots are are springing up and and life is coming out of the ground that used to be so barren. That's what it feels like. I feel like my heart had been frozen. And now it's a place where so many things can grow. This love, this forgiveness, this mercy, this reconciliation. It's so healing. It's so helpful. And it isn't just for me. It's for everyone. It's for everyone within the sound of my voice. Whether it's the coworker who undermined you or the business partner who betrayed you, the the family member that wounded you and abused you the neighbor, the friend, you name it, we've, none of us, gotten through this life unscathed. Every single one of us has something that we have to forgive. And every one of us, I think, knows what it's like also to go to another and say, I am so sorry. I can't believe I did that. I'm so ashamed of it and I apologize. Will you take me back? Will you let me back in? That's what... I've learned from this tragedy, from the loss of my sister, and from that message of love that she wrote in those last moments, that love is greater than our woundedness. Love is greater than hate or bitterness or vengeance. And love is the way out of this, of this hurt that we're in.
0: Love is greater than our woundedness. It's the way out of the hurt we're in. You're listening to Jean Bishop on Forgiving Her Sister's Murderer. Her book, Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer is available on Amazon. Again, the book is Change of Heart. Go to Amazon, get it, pass it to everyone you know. The more I got to know her through you, this convict said, the worse I feel about it. And then she said, it's your job to do every bit of good in the world that you can do. And by the way, what I loved about this piece is she wasn't asking that he not serve his time. And for anyone who's had a family member that was a victim of a crime, people need to be in jail and pay the price for what they did. But this beautiful way of dealing with it in the interpersonal level and through the reconciliation model, well, it's simply beautiful. Jean Bishop's story, her sister's story, and her sister's husband's story and David Bureau's story too, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and our next story is brought to us by a regular contributor Bill Bright who brings us the story of the Lionel train conceived by Joshua Lionel Cohen and his success was completely by accident as many great inventions are brilliant though he was the first electric train Cohen invented was not intended to be a toy here's Bill with the story
2: Once American railroads dominated popular culture because they were the only means of fast land transportation. Now there are other ways to get there from here. They seem less important, and toy trains share the marginalization of their prototypes. For perhaps a decade after World War II, the technical, managerial, and promotional genius of Joshua Lionel Cohen founder of the Lionel Corporation, made his toy trains a solid part of American middle-class boyhood. In 1952 alone, Lionel produced 622,209 engines and 2,460,764 freight and passenger cars. Ron Hollander's delightful, lavishly illustrated biography of Cohen and his company, All Aboard, states that Lionel's 1952 production eclipsed the nation's railroads, which had a mere 43,000 locomotives and 1.8 million cars in service. Joshua Lionel Cohen was born on Henry Street in Manhattan's Lower East Side on August 25, 1877. He preferred playing ball, bicycling, hiking, and tinkering with mechanical toys to formal education and soon became fascinated with electricity, its transmission, and its storage in batteries. In the labs at Peter Cooper Institute, he built what may have been, or what he claimed was, Cohen had no false modesty, the first electric doorbell. In 1899, he patented a device for igniting photographer's flash powder by using dry cell batteries to heat a wire fuse. Cohen then parlayed this into a defense contract to equip 24,000 Navy mines with detonators. His ignorance of armament manufacture did not stop him. He used mercuric fulminate, a sensitive and powerful explosive. His supplier's delivery men told him, The company said you should always keep a good deal around. It's better to be dead than maimed. In 1900, with $12,000 in profits, he began manufacturing electrical novelties at 24 murray street in lower manhattan as the lionel manufacturing company he was 23 years old business was slow he invented a battery-powered electric fan he said it was the most beautiful thing you ever saw it ran like a dream and it had only one thing wrong with it you could stand a foot away from the thing and not feel any breeze while walking on courtland street a few blocks south of his offices he stopped before Robert Ingersoll's toy store. Cohen was intrigued by store display windows, though he found most boring, and Ingersoll's was no exception. It was full of cast iron fire engines, balancing clowns and elephants on wheels, wind-up boats, and a tin locomotive on a pull string, all sitting lifeless. Cohen thought the constant motion of an electric toy might draw a crowd to the window. He looked at the locomotive again, Then he entered the store and sold Ingersoll on the idea that had just come to him on the sidewalk. He soon returned with the first Lionel train, the Electric Express. It looked like an open wooden cigar box on wheels. As Cohen later said, I sold my first railroad car, not as a toy, but as the first animated advertisement in New York outside of Sandwich Men and Live Demonstrators. I sold it for $4. Well, sir, the next day he was back for another. The first customer who saw it bought the advertisement instead of the goods. Ingersoll ordered half a dozen more. Other stores ordered them, too. Cohen had found his niche. In 1902, he produced his first electric trolley car, sold as a set with 30 feet of steel track. It cost $7. This was not cheap. An industrial worker's wages for a six-day week then averaged $9.42. In 1906, he began using three rail track, which radically simplified electrical transmission. Now an operator could build an elaborate track layout with turnouts and reversing loops without complicated wiring. A year after that, his catalog listed trolleys, steam and electric locomotives, passenger cars and freight cars, all brightly painted and lettered for the New York Central, Pennsylvania, Lakeshore, and other railroads. Cohen did not lack competition. But Cohen beat them because he produced a reliable product with an expanding line of accessories and was an audacious promoter, selling his toys as educational because he knew parents needed a rationalization for their purchase. Knowledge of electricity is valuable, not only as a profession, but as an education, whether one is an electrical engineer or a bell hanger. The kids couldn't have cared less. By 1912, Cohen had 150 employees. World War I stopped the import of German toy trains, and without serious domestic competition, Lionel became the dominant market player, with its large, lavishly illustrated color catalogs bringing the message to millions. By the late 30s, Cohen's models of the era's great locomotives, the New York Central's Hudson, the Milwaukee Road's Hiawatha, and the Jersey Central's Blue Comet, started, accelerated, slowed, and stopped in response to push-button remote controls. They pulled an endless cascade of boxcars, hopper cars, tank cars, and passenger cars. In 1929, Cohen unveiled the Transcontinental Limited, which stretched nine feet. It cost $110, then more than a second-hand Ford Model T car. As John R. Stilgo noted in Metropolitan Corridor, his study of railroads in American culture, Lionel's catalogs emphasized the trains and their environment. The bridges, stations, signal towers, tunnels, and turntables, all placed among twisting lines of track. Crossing signals with flashing lights, ringing bells, and descending gates protected the miniature citizens of Lionel City and Lionelville from onrushing expresses. Expansion was interrupted only by World War II. By 1945, most Americans hungered for distractions. Cohen's vision of America, as reflected in his trains and accessories, struck the exact chord of nostalgia and progress, and the orders poured in. Lionel's showroom on East 26th Street in Manhattan held a huge layout with a four track main line. Cars coupled and uncoupled, drawbridges rose and fell and coal bunkers dumped coal into waiting hopper cars. Cattle herded themselves into and out of stock cars. As trains passed through grade crossings, tiny crossing guards popped from their shacks to wave their lanterns. Whistles, chuffing sounds, and even smoke came out of the locomotives. Cohen, who had handed over Lionel's presidency to his son, Lawrence, loved to spend hours among the crowds, occasionally providing expert advice to customers. Hollander recounts how Lawrence, who lived at Two Sutton Place, was awakened by his doorbell at 6 a.m. one Christmas day. He found two small neighbors in pajamas who asked, Can you fix our trains? Understandably, their parents were still asleep. Lawrence, in bathrobe and slippers, followed them up to their apartment. The president of Lionel soon had the trains running. Then he wished the boys a Merry Christmas and padded back downstairs to bed. The good times didn't last. They never do. From 1953, Lionel's best year, to 1959, sales dropped by more than half. It was television. Hollander noted that families got together to watch I Love Lucy, not to wire Lionel's new ice depot and watch a tiny man push blocks of ice down the open hatch of a toy refrigerator car. It was aging. As kids grew older, they became more interested in Elvis, James Dean, girls, and cars, and it was the decline of American railroads. Cohen's marketing genius had perfectly fit the nation's mood for perhaps eight years. Then, suddenly, it didn't. In 1958, the company lost money for the first time since the Depression. In September 1959, Lawrence returned from a sales trip to the Far East to learn that his father and sister had sold their shares of stock to a group of businessmen led by Cohen's great-nephew, Roy Cohn. Cohn paid $15 for each of his Lionel shares in 1959. Four years later, he sold them for $5.25. Lionel survives to this day despite a string of bankruptcies and reorganizations. In 1999, A&E produced an hour-long show ranking the top ten toys of the 20th century. Lionel was number four, preceded only by the yo-yo, crayons, and Barbie. If Cohen had been alive, he died on September 8, 1965, and was buried within hearing of a secondary freight line of the Long Island Railroad, the old promoter would have screamed in protest. This was unfair. The trains should have come first.
0: And great job, as always, by Robbie. And a special thanks to Bill Breich, our resident historian who tells such great stories about so many different kinds of things. My goodness, to have done what Cohen managed to do, which is to create one of the great toys of the 20th century, ranked number four. And by the way, Barbie, crayons, and yo-yo. thats pretty That's pretty heavy territory. The story of Joshua Lionel Cohen. In the end, the story of the Lionel toy train, and so much more about America, the American dream, and how we live as American families, here on Our American Stories. American stories and we tell stories of all sorts here on this show and this next one is a story about a bridge in Durham, North Carolina that has captured the world's attention on YouTube Today, Jesse brings us the story of the 11 foot 8 inch high bridge.
3: The 11 foot 8 bridge is a railroad trestle in Durham, North Carolina that people keep running into with their big trucks, buses and RVs Sometimes entire roofs of moving vans are removed. Peeled and rolling back like a tin can, big rigs are stuck under the thing. And despite many large warning signs and flashing lights, warning drivers who dare to pass under its 11 foot eight clearance, people just keep running into it. One day, Jurgen Henn started
4: recording.
5: The bridge is right outside my office. I started working in that building in 2002, and uh, every time a truck hits the bridge, we kind of notice because it's loud, usually. <laughs> and so over, over the years and, you know, every, every few weeks we walk out there and check on the driver and, and kind of survey the mayhem.
3: The trestle is over 100 years old, and at the time it was built, there were no standards for minimum clearance. On average, about once a month, the truck runs into the damn thing.
5: In 2008, I was setting up a home security system and with, a, with you know, wireless cameras and decided that it would be kind of interesting to set up one of those cameras at the office to start filming the traffic and maybe catch one or two of these truck crashes to see what that actually looks like. I'd never actually seen it happen in real life. As it happened, just a couple of weeks after I set up the camera, I caught the first crash and decided to put it on YouTube. It became pretty popular right away. So clearly there was an interest for that kind of footage. So I certainly kept recording. There was not much overhead really.
3: The North Carolina Railroad Company owns the trestle, but lifting it would cost millions of dollars, so they installed a crash beam. It reduces the impact of trucks hitting the trestle by slicing open the vehicle like a 46 Ford cutting through a DeLorean. They call it the can opener. The road can't be lowered because of sewer lines underneath, and there are warning signs for three blocks leading up to it. There's even a sensor that can detect a truck that won't fit. If your rig is too tall, it'll trigger a sequence of massive flashing lights that specifically tell the driver to exit. But still, people keep hitting it. Jurgen has hundreds of videos of people crashing into this thing and millions of views on YouTube. He even collects parts of the crash debris and sells it back to his fans.
5: I credit my wife for that idea. I mean, I just clean up a little bit when we go down there, kind of pick up the pieces I noticed that they're kind of cool looking. You know, sometimes they're bent in spirals or, or other interesting shapes. So I started keeping the, the, the more interesting looking pieces in my office. But over the years, well, one box after another, I eventually hauled some of those boxes home. <laughs> and my wife said, honey... Um, Let's do something with these boxes of truck pieces. How about I try to sell them? And I'm like, sure, honey. You try to sell them. Well, yeah, like, he was actually onto something and um, you know, took some nice pictures, named the pieces, and uh, started our online store. Where we sell T-shirts and crash art. That was that. That moniker was also right. Yeah. <laughs> Call it crash art. Lucrative is probably not the word that comes to mind. Um, I'm not about to quit my day job over this for sure. I, I would call it a self-sustaining hobby. Make enough money off the T-shirt sales and, and crash art, and I have a Patreon page now too to help sort of sustain the whole thing. Every couple of years or so, get new cameras so I can capture good, good high-quality footage.
3: For the record, the actual clearance height of the 11 foot 8 bridge is 11 foot 10.8, which technically gives it 2.8 inches more than advertised. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
0: And thanks for that story, Jesse. And people do everything in this country. They have all kinds of hobbies. Some people bowl. Some people play poker. Some people golf, knit. This guy, crash art. And as he said it, it's a self-sustaining hobby. And boy, that's better than most. Most of us have to pay for our hobbies. By the way, you can go to YouTube and there's a video of somewhere over 7 million views of the ultimate montage of all the crashes that this gentleman has filmed over the years with his little homespun rigged camera that he just decided would be Capture all the crashes he'd never seen. Now he gets to see it. Now we all get to see it. And by the way, if you have quirky stories like this, passions, hobbies, or know people who do, send them our way. And that's ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. I'm trying to run down a guy who has a toaster museum. I'd seen an article about it somewhere. And if anybody knows, the wisdom of the crowds is great. I'd seen or read this story about a guy who'd collected toasters from the beginning of time and has turned his home and several others into this ultimate toaster museum. And that's right, toaster, T-O-A-S-T-E-R. And he's walking through it and talking about every single kind of toaster, the one piece of toast toaster, then the two piece of toast toaster, the ones that fold, the one that hold four. And he was just waxing poetic. And I can just imagine what his wife thinks of that toaster museum it's tens of thousands of dollars in time but if it keeps them off the streets well you know what's the problem your hobbies send them our way a friend's somebody in town ouramericannetwork.org the story of the 11 foot 8 inch bridge actually the 11 foot 10 inch bridge here on our american story our American stories and up next are this day in history series brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life all the things are, that are beautiful in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu and now the story of a medal of honor recipient that you might not expect a catholic priest Father Vincent Capadano was a chaplain with the U.S. Marines in the Vietnam War, and he was killed in action on this day in history in 1967. And Alex Cortez brings us his story through the voices of the men he ministered to.
6: Here's Marine Corporal Henry Hernandez.
7: I was on my second tour of Vietnam. Why I was there, I really didn't know, but I knew that I might not make it back So I wanted to get close to God. So if the moment came, I would be prepared. So I got up on a a Sunday morning. I knew that I had to go to confession, so I got in line, but I didn't know what was around the corner. There was like a bunker or something. So I couldn't see nothing on the other side of the bunker. When I got closer, Father Capitano is sitting on top of empty ammo boxes. And the Marine is kneeling right in front of him. And I didn't know if I could do this. I said, we're gonna make eye contact. I felt embarrassed, ashamed. I had been away from the church for over a year. So I was gonna get out of line, but something kept me there. The next thing I knew, there was only one more Marine in front of me. So I said, well, I'll get ready. So I made a plan. I said, when I walk over to him, I'm gonna look down at his boots, make the sign of the cross, and do not make eye contact with him. So I walk over to him when it was my turn, and I kept looking in his boots, and I made the sign of the cross, and I said, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been over a year since my last confession. And then he said, I will help you with your confession. And that's when I looked up. And to this day, I don't know what made me looked up. I looked up to him. We made eye contact. He was just seeing right through me. And those piercing eyes that he had, hazel eyes, I mean, I knew he could see right, right through me. After it was over, I felt different. And then he told me, for your penance, I want you to say the rosary. And I said, Father, I do not have a rosary. And he just reached in his pocket He said, you have one now. He gave me his rosary. And I carry it with me at all times to this day. People want to hold it to see if they can get a miracle.
6: You'll see why in a little bit. Here's Marine Captain George Phillips. The thing that I remember most
8: is his eyes. And other people have said, pretty much the same thing, but when you talk to Father Capodanno, there could be, you know, a war going on, and you felt like it was just he and you, and nobody else mattered. And typically, you had to end the conversation, he wouldn't. And he had an innate ability to listen, but he also had an innate ability to know when Marines needed to talk about something and he would sit and wait in silence until the Marine decided to talk.
7: And he was the type of person that he wouldn't come and ask you questions. How are you doing? Uh, he would make himself present, close to you. He had that ability to draw you to him and you would automatically open up to him without even thinking about it.
6: Here's Lance Corporal John Lober.
7: Had kind
8: of a, a little bit of a rock star quality. Even though a lot of the guys weren't Catholic, every time he'd walk around to the Mike Company area, people would flock around this man, you know?
6: Here's Captain Tony Grimm. He was like the Pied Piper,
9: just attracting everybody to mass. Everybody, regardless of their faith, as he performed general absolution, was making the sign of the cross. It was a most remarkable situation.
6: Here's Colonel Gerald Turley.
8: And When he would say Mass, it was not uncommon to have the local women, babies strapped on their back. A lot of them were Catholic. most of them were Buddhists. They would come. And after the Mass, people wouldn't leave. You know how we all leave church a little early? They wouldn't leave. But as long as Father would stay, they would stay.
7: His love for the Marines was just awesome. And then finally one day he told me, I want to be like them. And I couldn't understand at first what he meant. Well, first of all, chaplains rarely went out into the field.
8: Uh, they always stayed in the rear. That's where the battalion commanders wanted them. That's where the company commanders wanted them because they didn't want to be responsible for them out in combat. while the had a reputation for doing just that.
6: Here's Lieutenant Fred Smith.
10: Shortly after
8: I first met him, father Capodanno slipped out on a platoon-sized patrol with me which he was absolutely forbidden to do he was so courageous and so committed to going out with the troops that the battalion commander as i recall had forbidden him to go out with anything other than the battalion headquarters but it didn't make a bit of difference to father Capodanno. he just he just would go anyway
6: Here again is Captain Tony Grimm on a difficult conversation that he had with Father Cappadano.
9: He would have an assistant assigned to him, which we commonly called a shotgun, because the assistant's job was to ride shotgun or be protection for him. And, and Father Cappadano said, no way. He wasn't going to have anybody responsible for his life. He just couldn't accept that. somebody." might become a casualty because they were protecting him. But he he liked to be independent and not be under any restrictions. We discussed this over a period of about two days. I said, all right, if you don't have a chaplain's assistant assigned to you, you're gonna carry a weapon. You're gonna carry a 45. And he got angry, got very angry with me and he said, do you realize what you're asking me to do? I'm a Catholic priest. I can't carry a weapon. And I said, You've got a choice. It's either the 45 or a chaplain's assistant.
6: Here again is Henry Hernandez, who became
7: Father's Choice out of those two options. We would attend the battalion's briefings, and he would always find out which uh, element was going to go in first. And then he would tell the battalion commander, I want to go on the first wave. The battalion commander would say, No, no, you can't go, Padre. He would leave and then come back later. I guess he made a call to, bat- to division because then the battalion commander would get a call from division saying, if the Padre wants to go on the first wave, let him go.
6: Here's Lieutenant Jerry Pendas.
10: We we're trying to cross the stream and the streams were swollen pretty heavy. We were out there for 30 days they tried to get across the stream and the only way they could do it was lock arms and get across the stream well the chain of marines broke two marines got washed away they weren't swimmers they both drowned they were trying to recover the bodies and it came over the radio and i saw the chaplain i said "Uh, bravo company just lost a couple of kids trying to cross that creek up there and he said where are they i said well they're a couple of clicks away from here being clicks being kilometers he didn't even ask the colonel or anything he just took off by himself and we were in the jungles just went off by himself but anyway it was just like a, a shot out of a movie here comes capitano leading the company and they got the two marines up in the front and they'd ripped the doors off of some hooches, and they were carrying him on like on their shields two marines dead That just one little act giving them the last rights and bringing them back and finding it you know all by himself i just thought there must have been a trail that he was following or something somebody he had some type of guide to- The chaplains
8: for 99% of them did not go outside the base camps. When we started hearing about a chaplain that was out with the grunts, going on patrols, getting caught up in firefights, that was a unique experience.
6: Here's Corporal James Hamfeld.
4: Nobody ever turned Father Vincent down. The Men wanted him out there. Uh, We were afraid when he was out there, and we really didn't want him there, but he was a relief to see. He actually slipped out of the position we
10: were in and followed by
8: platoon on patrol until it was too late for us to tell him to go back. It's how he did it with me. I don't know how he did it with with the other folks, but he would just show up, and he had an aura about him. I think that even the colonel was reluctant to uh, argue with.
0: And you're listening to the story of Medal of Honor recipient, Father Vincent Cappadano. Chaplains rarely went out into the field. They rarely left base camp. Not Father Cappadano. My goodness, going on patrols, getting into firefights. No one turns Father Cappadano down. One of the men who knew him well said, When we come back, more of this remarkable life story. Father Vincent Cappadano's story here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories and with the story of Navy Chaplain Father Vincent Cappadano, who ministered to the Marines in the Vietnam War. When father finished his first tour of duty, he returned to Staten Island, his home, and immediately put in a request for another tour of duty. And no one in his family dared to try and stop him. Let's return to his brother James.
8: Vincent had his own mind and he was his own man. And, and he, when he made his mind up, he did what he wanted to do. When I say change, his whole his whole body and mind was in Vietnam. He couldn't wait to get back. He didn't tell us, but you could see that. We understood that.
6: On June 6, 1967, Father's request for another tour was granted. And just three days later, his family dropped him off at the airport. That's the last time everybody saw him here at the, at the airport. Here's Father Daniel Mode, author of Capadano's biography, The Grunt Padre, on Padre's Last Day.
11: It was Labor Day in the United States. People were running about to the beaches and the last barbecues, having a joyous time before school began. But in a whole other world away in Vietnam, the war was continuing to rage. And on this Labor Day of September 4th, 1967, Father Cappadano found himself. 50 miles to the southwest of Da Nang with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Early that morning, a small platoon of men of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines was on a typical search and destroy mission, a patrol. They found the enemy, or really the enemy had found them. This small group of less than 100 men found 2,500 North Vietnamese in a major offensive. Obviously, this platoon was quickly overrun. and. More and more command elements of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were added to this battle that would be known as Operation Swift. One company after the next.
6: Taking off one after another from the LZ, the landing zone.
8: We were gathering in the LZ, waiting for the choppers to come. 1st platoon was going first, then second, then third. Father Capodanno was down there, talking to the Marines. He used to tell everybody, God is with us this day. Everything will be okay. But it was always, God is with us this day. And he said that to a group of us that were standing around. Uh, He used to carry St. Christopher medals.
6: The patron saint of travelers like themselves. He used to hand them out
8: to people who didn't have them. Uh, I remember at one point, I was told, I mean, I saw it from a distance. One Marine asked for a St. Christopher medal, and apparently he was out of them, so he took his own St. Christopher medal off and gave it to the Marine. Uh, (laughs) Father Cappadano always had plenty of cigarettes. I think he had like a factory in his tent or something. So he was handing cigarettes out to folks and trying to put them at ease because everyone knew this was not going to be a good day.
6: Here's First Lieutenant J.D. Murray.
5: And as he has done previously, he waits till the last helicopter uh, because he didn't want anybody to know he was going out there. And he
11: comes aboard.
8: After all the first platoon went, second platoon went, third platoon went, and he got on the last helicopter in the third
6: platoon because there was nobody left in the LZ to stop him. James Hill Gardner was asked as a commanding officer would he have approved father being in a firefight like that
8: no if he was coming with me I'd put a rope around his neck and tied him to my belt I knew he was the kind of guy who wasn't going to stay in one place he was a grunt padre he was going to be with the men and no matter what so no he would have either been left behind or he would
4: have been chained to me Uh, you might say he answered to a higher calling. Nobody's gonna stop a Catholic priest from getting on a chopper. Nobody. I certainly wouldn't, and I'm sure the pilot
11: didn't either. So he boarded the helicopters with M Company and made their way towards that battalion aid station that was quickly being set up so that the wounded and the dying could come to a place on the battlefield. That's where Father Cappadano needed to be. The helicopter didn't make it there. It was literally shot down in the midst of rice fields so close to the battlefield. Father Cappadano got off the helicopter with his men. There are two platoons on either side as they made their way now on foot to that battalion aid station, but between them and that aid station lay the conflagration of war. They set themselves up on a small knoll. On the other side of that knoll raged the battle. On this side, M Company established its command post. Father Cappadano could hear the gunfire, the men engaged in battle, and he heard the radio operator calling back to the command post. We're being overrun. We're being overrun. We can't hold out. That was Corporal Lovejoy. Well, Father Capadano couldn't hold out anymore. He had been in Vietnam for 16 months, was in eight major battle campaigns. He knew what Combat was all about. He knew where his men needed him most, and he knew where his sacraments were needed most. And it wasn't on the safety side of that knoll of the hill. He dashed over that hill, found that radio operator, Corporal Lovejoy, grabbed him by the shoulder, and brought him back to relative safety.
10: He literally saved my life on September 4th, 1967, by helping me up the knoll to a safe position in a bomb crater. Had he not been there, I would not be here today. My children would not be here. My grandchildren would not be here.
11: Time and time again throughout that late morning and early afternoon, he would do the same thing with the wounded and dying.
8: And I'm screaming, get down, father, get down. You have to get down. There's so many bullets in the air. You could trim your fingernails by sticking your hands up.
11: His first wound of the day was through his right hand. It was shot, disabling his fingers. He was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield on the next medevac. He said, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Oftentimes, the Marines deploy tear gas through the area in order to dissuade the North Vietnamese, who don't have gas masks, to disperse. All the Marines donned their gas masks save one. He had lost it. Without a thought, Father Cappadano took off his gas mask, gave it to that young Marine to continue the fight, while Father Cappadano choked back the tears. For that heroic act, he got his second wound of the day in his right shoulder when a mortar went off, now dislabeling his whole right arm. Again, was bandaged up but refused to leave the battlefield, only saying, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Sergeant Peters was dying. Sergeant Peters would receive the Medal of Honor that day for his heroics on the battlefield, exposing himself to gunfire so that he could point out where the machine guns were on the ridge. No one dared go near Sergeant Peters save one man, Father Capadano, who ran to his side despite the bullets, despite his own wounds, to pray with that man, to care for him in his last hours, and prayed the Our Father as he died in his arms. After that scene, a Marine shouted out, my gun is jammed, my gun is jammed. Without a thought, Father Capitano took the rifle of Sergeant Peters, ran across the battlefield without firing a shot to give it to that young Marine to continue the fight.
0: And you've been listening to the story of Medal of Honor recipient, Father Vincent. Capadano, first, second, and third platoons went out, and he got on that last helicopter because, well, there was no one left to stop him. He was a grunt padre, as one of the men revealed, and he was going to be with the men no matter what. Wounded once, shot in the hand, twice, a mortar round in the shoulder. When we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story, again, of Father Vincent Capadano as told by so many of the men he served and loved. This is our American story. And we continue with our american stories and with the story of father Capadano a one-of-a-kind chaplain who ministered to marines in the heart and heat of the battlefield let's return to his heroic actions on september 4 1967 when he was with his marines during the vietnam wars operation swift
8: so later in the day you lose track of time when People are shooting at you all the time. So uh, about three or four hours, to my memory, others will say two hours, he saw some wounded Marines that were down towards the bottom of the hill. Uh, There was a wounded corpsman too. And he was running from person to person, providing what comfort and the sacraments that's necessary to these Marines. A machine gunner had set up a nest very well, camouflaged and he had a firing channel that happened to separate some wounded Marines over here and some wounded Marines over here the corpsman over here who he tried to get to help never got there but he was helping people on one side and he was getting ready to go on the other side and they were screaming at him don't cross over the machine gunners there don't cross over because we had three or four Marines already been wounded, trying to cross over that firing channel. Uh, he didn't listen to anybody. He took off across the clearing, trying to get to three other Marines. The machine gun opened up and uh, shot him 26 times in the back. But he never had any fear for himself. He was just a miraculous,
6: amazing priest. Here's Lance Corporal Fred Tankey, who watched Father Cappadano's death right before his eyes.
12: We had 18 killed, including Father Capodanno, and 80 plus wounded. And there are times, you gotta wonder, did the winners die? We have an awful lot of people from Vietnam with a lot of problems. And, and some people will say, well, God has a mission for you. God has a job for you. God wants you around. Well, to me, those guys that died that day were every bit as good as I ever was, and if not better.
6: Fred continues on returning stateside.
12: It's, it's called an adjustment period, and it's very difficult for some. My way of adjusting was to ignore 40 years, 40 years. I barely ever thought of anything about Vietnam, especially that day. There were a couple things, obviously, that impacted me the worst. But uh, I always tried to keep track of what happened with Father Capodanno, since I was the original person who wrote him up for the Medal of Honor. So I was very happy and grateful that he, that he won. He deserved it. He deserved everything he got because who does that? You're fortunate that I can do this like this today. There are times that I give up the speech I couldn't talk. You know. But I think, I know people get tired of hearing about it and hearing about it and hearing about it. But it's very therapeutic. It's very therapeutic. And the more you talk about it, the more you can feel comfortable about talking about it, which then helps not only you, but maybe others.
11: In many ways, obviously, that is the last heroic act of Father Cappadano. But in all ways, it is how God uses a person like Father Cappadano, not just in his heroic act, but throughout his life and even into his death. I tell this story After his death on September 4, 1967, it affected greatly, especially the area of New York where he grew up. And one man who used to teach in school with him when he was a seminarian read the story of Father Cappadano's death. He hadn't been to church for a long time. And because he was so moved by the heroic aspect of Father Cappadano and knowing him, He decided it was time for him to get back to church. He walked into the church, told the priest why he was there and wanted to go to confession. And then the priest, kind of amazed at this whole thing, said, well, why? Why are you coming back? And he told him the story of Father Cappadano. And then he said these words. I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? And Father Cappadano hasn't stopped working. One of the persons I got to know through this who was with Father Cappadano on, his, on the day he died is a lieutenant, Fred Smith. You may know him as the founder and CEO of FedEx. But on that day of September 4th, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He knew Father Cappadano well, and it was at, at that death that inspired Fred Smith to re-engage in his faith, to re-engage in a purpose in life. Ultimately, he would say that it was Father Cappadano's example and witness that propelled him to take that risk so many years ago to found that company. Well, he wanted to talk to me about Father Cappadano, and I met with him. His story is in the book, The Grand Padre. Well, when I was meeting with him, I was the vice principal of this Catholic high school, and I was building a memorial there. And the center of the memorial was a statue of the Holy Family that we were having carved in Carrara, Italy. But the shippers couldn't guarantee that it would be there by the end of the school year for our dedication. I had an issue, obviously. A big statue, about a ton. Now I'm going to meet with Fred Smith. After he tells me this amazing story of his encounters with Father Cappadano on that day of September 4th, literally he's crying, telling me this story. He says, Father, is there anything I can do for you? Bing, light goes off. I said, Fred, I've got a ton of a problem. I've got this statue in Carrara, Italy. I need to get it here to the United States. 48 hours later, it was FedExed. True story. A missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? Obviously, some of the more incredible touch of Father Cappadano in people's lives have been the miracles dedicated to his name. All of those are being investigated as we continue the cause
6: the cause for him to be declared a saint.
8: Father Cappadino, uh, you can't forget a man like that. It's just impossible because nobody has, nobody is ever going to have an effect on you the way he did. And the Marines and sailors that worked with him will tell you that to a man.
7: Padre, thank you very much for saving my life. But most important, thank you for saving my soul and bringing me back to the Catholic Church. I mean, I, 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 not a day goes by that I don't say thank you God, but thank you Chaplain Capitano for saving my soul. And uh, you know, I just hope that I live to see him become a saint I think that would be the happiest day of my life.
6: Here's Lieutenant Ed Blacksmith.
4: I have the, I made it kind of the vow to myself that the the people who didn't come home, including Father Cappadano, it was my, my responsibility to live my life to the best I could live it, to honor them live a life that they were unable to live. And when, when my son was killed in Iraq, and then three years later, his mother died of cancer. And friends of I would say, how do you deal with this? And I said, I have three things. I have a very strong faith, I have a lot of good friends, In my Marine Corps training. Well, what's the Marine Corps? I said, well, the Marine Corps teach you to complete the mission. Life is a one-way ticket. It's not a round trip. We do it one time. And uh, I don't think Pam or JP would want me to not live my life to the fullest degree. And I honor the people who didn't come home by doing that.
0: And a special thanks to Alex and Joey. Great work, is always, on the piece. And we'd like to thank a few folks who helped make this story possible, EWTN, for allowing us to use the material from their film about Father Capadano that's titled Called and Chosen. You can purchase this powerful film at EWTNRC.com. We'd also like to thank Focus TV for also allowing us to use material from their film, The Grunt Padre, in Vietnam, which you can buy at FocusTVOnline.com. Finally, we'd like to thank the Father Capadano Guild, the nonprofit that's promoting the cause for sainthood, the Father Vincent R. Capadano. You can learn about and support their work at capadanoguild.org. Running from person to person, providing comfort and sacraments is all I could think about in that story. Amongst all that fire, all that danger, that's what he was doing, serving to the end. He never had any fear for himself, one of his men said. I guess. A missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? That question resounded again and again. Thank you for saving my life, one of his men said. More important, thank you for saving my soul. I hope that I live to see him become a saint. That would be the happiest day of my life. The story of Father Vincent Capadano, He was killed in action on this day in history in 1967 and, as always, Our This Day in History stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to listen to and watch with your family all of their terrific online courses. Again, that's hillsdale.edu. This is Our American Stories.